0: Well, good morning, Ivan Rest Church. Uh, Obviously, I would like to be with you in person this morning, but uh, unfortunately, COVID had other plans uh, for me and my family, and so uh, instead wanted to at least record the message uh, that we were planning to do for this Sunday. Uh, If you were with us last week, then you know we just started a brand new sermon series uh, talking about the the topic of of generosity, the biblical concept of generosity. And so this is the second uh, message in that series. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Matthew 19, verses 16 uh, through 22. And this will be a pretty familiar text, I think, to to a lot of you. Uh, So Matthew writes, uh, records this interaction uh, that Jesus has with, with a rich young man. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept. The young man said what do i still lack jesus answered if you want to be perfect go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come and follow me when the young man heard this he went away sad because he had great wealth this is the word of the lord thanks be to god brothers and sisters in jesus christ early on in victor hugo's classic story lame as a rob There's a scene where the fugitive criminal, Jean Valjean, is arrested and dragged back to face a well-known bishop, who he's recently robbed. Basically, after staying the night in the bishop's home, Valjean repays the bishop's hospitality by stealing his expensive silverware and making off with it in the early hours of the morn. Later that same day, though, he's apprehended by the gendarme, the French police. And though he insists that the bishop gave him the silverware as a gift, they take him back to face the music anyway. To the gendarme's surprise, though, the bishop confirms Valjean's story. Playing along with his lie, the bishop looks at Valjean and says, It was a gift. But my friend, he continued, you forgot the most important part. And taking the elaborate candlesticks that completed the set of silver, the bishop put them in a sack, gave them to Valjean, and said, you must not forget these, for they are worth more than all the rest of the silver combined. There's a reason that scene is one of the most enduring illustrations of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and generosity in our culture. Put simply, it's a, it's a beautiful and powerful example of what it looks like to repay evil with good. And if you know the rest of the story, it's also the turning point that kicks off the transformation in Valjean's life that makes the rest of Hugo's tale possible. I only wish that we could say the same thing about the rich young man here in our text for this morning. You see, this encounter that this young man has with Jesus here in Matthew chapter 19 is similar to the one Hugo writes Valjean having with the bishop in Les Miserables. Unfortunately, while it doesn't end the same way, with the same sort of transformation, it does start the same way. That's because at the start of this scene in verses 18 and 19, Jesus more or less tells the rich young man the same thing that the bishop told Valjean when he confronted him. The rich young man comes to Jesus, seeking advice. Jesus assesses the situation, looks at him, and tells him more or less in response, My friend you've forgotten the most important thing, the most valuable thing, the thing that's better and more worthwhile than anything else that you have. And what is this important thing that the rich young man here is forgetting? He's forgetting about God. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is giving this rich young man a masterclass of sorts in understanding and interpreting the Ten Commandments here in Matthew 19. Uh, You see, while Jesus is in essence saying you're forgetting the most important thing, in verses 18 and 19, what he's literally doing is quoting the Ten Commandments. Specifically, he's quoting five sixths of the second table of the law of the commandments, or sorry, of the law of the Ten Commandments. What do I mean by that? Um, Well, the Ten Commandments, originally found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, have historically been divided into, into two halves, or what scholars call the two tables of the law. The first table, or first half, is comprised of the first four commandments and governs how we as human beings relate to God, or the vertical aspect of our faith. And we talked about this a little bit last week as well. Um, It's things like, have no other gods before me, don't make any idols for yourselves, don't misuse the name of the Lord, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's all the stuff that we need to do in order to live in right relationship with God. The second half, or second table, of the commandments, though, governs how we live in right relationship with each other. It's all the horizontal aspects of our faith. And that's the half, that's the table that Jesus quotes to this rich young man here in Matthew 19. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, What good thing must I do in order to get eternal life? Jesus says, Keep the commandments. The rich young man responds, Which ones? And so Jesus lists them for him. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man says. What do I still lack? And the answer is, quite a bit actually. Now, at first glance, that might sound kind of strange to us, right? I mean, after all, this is a pretty exhaustive list of commandments that Jesus gives here. Not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, no lying, honoring your parents. You keep all those, and most people would say that you're a pretty good person, right? But what's interesting here is that Jesus omits some pretty significant commands from this list. For starters, he actually leaves out the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, Uh, That's why I said that Jesus quotes five-sixths of the the second table of the law here. Because while he lists commandments five through nine for this young man, he leaves commandment ten out. And that's because, at least according to most scholars, given the rich young man's disposition towards wealth, Jesus probably knew that that one would be a bit of a hang-up for him. But the bigger omission here is that while Jesus quotes most of the second table of the law, he actually quotes none of the first table commandments to this rich young man. and That's interesting. It's interesting because like we said, while the second table of the law governs our relationship with each other, all the horizontal aspects of our faith, the first table of the law governs our relationship with God, the vertical aspects of our faith. In other words, while the second table of the commandments governs how we relate to each other as human beings, The first table of the commandments governs how we relate to God, how we worship him, how we honor him, how we glorify him, how we magnify him. And yet Jesus quotes none of those commands to the rich young man here. So the question is, why? Well, according to the commentators, the reason, or at least part of it, seems to be that Jesus is trying to get a point across to this rich young man. You've kept the second table of the law fairly well, Jesus seems to be telling him. Good job. You relate the way that you should to others. But what about the first table of the law? Have you followed those commands? Have you been honoring God? Have you been magnifying him? Have you been worshiping him the way that you should? Over and above anything else. In other words, Jesus is more or less saying, you've forgotten the most important thing. You do pretty well with all the second table commands, all of how you relate to other people. But do you see it? Do you see what you've missed? Do you see what you lack? Jesus wants this young man to pick up on the fact that he didn't actually list all of the commandments to him. There's a gap. Can the young man see it? Can he pick up on the fact that Jesus didn't list any of the commands about his relationship with God? And unfortunately, no. The young man's silence here is deafening. He he doesn't see it. He doesn't pick up on it. He can't see that while he's remembered the whole second half of the commands, he's forgotten the first. In other words, he can't see that he's forgotten about God. And the reason, as we learn in verse 22, is because his wealth, his riches, his money have become an idol for him. They've actually taken the place of God. And they've made it so that he can't even see how much God is missing in his life. And the fact of the matter is that the same thing can all too easily happen to us too. Our wealth, our money, our riches can all too easily become an idol that pushes God out of our lives. Now, when we think of idols, we probably picture something a little different, right? You know, it's a little statue or something, that's what we think of when we think of idols. Um, you know, we imagine a, a little golden image of an, a- of an ancient animal deity of some type, or, or a wooden figurine, um, or a fat little statue of a cross-legged Buddha or something like that. <clears throat> And while that's what most idols probably look like throughout much of history, including what some might still look like in certain parts of the world, and certain cultures and religions, I think that that image is a bit misleading. Um, after all, for most of us these days, at least those of us who live in modern, um, sort of European-descended West, that's not what our idols look like. They're not little statues or figurines like that anymore. <clears throat> Instead, they look a lot more like this young man's wealth did for him. You see, probably the best definition um, I've heard for idolatry, at least the kind of idolatry we're susceptible to as postmodern Western people today, is the definition that Tim Keller gives. Uh, According to Keller, idolatry is what happens when good things become ultimate things in our lives. An idol is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing for us, according to Keller. In other words, an idol is something that while it might be good, you know, there's nothing uh, bad or inherently evil about it, um, it's taken on an outsized level of influence, time, attention, and devotion in our lives. And so as a result, what it's done is it's pushed God out of his rightful place in our lives. Probably the place where we see that illustrated most clearly, uh, at least in scripture, is Matthew chapter 4, which is the temptation of Jesus. Now, I've talked about this, uh, this passage before in previous sermons, um, but it's important enough that I'm going to talk about it again, and you know, it's probably not the last time either. Um, you see, what's interesting about that passage is that none of the things Satan tempts Jesus with in Matthew chapter 4 are inherently all that bad. After all, do you remember what Satan's first temptation was? Um, you know, Jesus has been out in the wilderness uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, right? He's been fasting. Uh, he hasn't eaten anything, and so He's hungry. And in the first temptation, what happens is that Satan comes to him and he says, Hey, you're really hungry, right? Uh, Why don't you tell some of these stones to become bread? In other words, Satan's whole temptation to Jesus here is, Why don't you make yourself a little snack? You know, why don't you make yourself a little food? Um, Make a little meal for yourself. And that's not bad, right? That's not a bad thing. In fact, most of us have probably done that already this morning. Probably made ourselves some breakfast, made a little bit of food for ourselves. The second temptation isn't all that bad either. That's because for the second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem and has him stand on the highest point of the temple. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, you know, dealing with, uh, dealing with a little something here. Um, it was probably also the highest point in the entire city, actually, because the temple was probably the tallest building in Jerusalem at the time. And so Satan takes Jesus to the highest point that he can, and he tells him, throw yourself down. But that's not actually the temptation, that's just a dare. The temptation is what comes next. And that's because, and I find this so fascinating, what Satan actually does after he tells Jesus to throw himself down is he quotes scripture to him. It's a little part of of Psalm 91 actually, uh, verses 11, or at least part of verse 11, Satan has a key omission there, and then also verse 12. He says, Throw yourself down, for he, God, will command himself, his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, what Satan is doing here is he is tempting Jesus to put his trust in God. He's tempting him to misuse that trust, actually. He's saying, look, you believe in Scripture, right? You believe your Father, you believe his promises, you trust in him, let's try that out. Let's put it to the test. Let's see all of that in action. The promises of Scripture, the promises of your Father, your trust in Him. And again, right, on its face, that's not necessarily a bad thing, trusting in God, trusting in Scripture. The third temptation is a bit trickier, right? That's because in the third temptation, Satan takes uh, Jesus up on top of a very tall mountain. He tells him to look around as far as the eye can see at all the kingdoms of the world around him. All this I will give you, Satan says, if only you bow down and worship me. In this time, this temptation is a little less innocent, right? Uh, It's a little more sinister right from the start. It's more obviously wrong. I mean, all of us, I think, would agree that that bowing down to and worshiping Satan uh, is something that's, that's wrong for us as believers in God. And yet, when you think about it, part of Satan's temptation here is simply for Jesus to live into his identity. After all, Isn't that part of what we actually believe about Jesus? That he is Lord, that he is king, that he does rule all the kingdoms of the world? That's at the heart of Satan's temptation here. That's who you are, right? He says to Jesus. You claim to be king, don't you? Well, how about this? I'll give up my claim to this world. I'll give up my claim." to being king and lord over it. I'll let you have it. No need to do it the hard way. No need to go to the cross. No need to suffer. No need to die. All you have to do is worship me and we'll just call it good right here and now. Again, while this temptation is a bit more obviously wrong than the others, there are still elements of it that aren't inherently bad or evil because Satan to some degree is recognizing Jesus' lordship and authority and kingship. And that's the point You see, in a sense, all of the things that Satan tempts Jesus with in Matthew 4 are to a degree actually good things. Some more than others, right? That last one, again, it's a little more sinister. But none of them are completely, totally, inherently wrong. Instead, what makes them wrong is that Satan twists them. He warps and distorts them. And that's because he's trying to get Jesus to rely on those things more than he relies on God, more than he relies on his Father. To put it another way, Satan is trying to get Jesus to take good things, things like food, things like Scripture, his trust in his Father, his identity and calling as king over creation, to take those things and turn them into something ultimate, something that takes the place of God, something idolatrous. And that's how Satan tempts us, too. You see, that's what pretty much all of our sin as human beings boils down to. It all all boils down to us misunderstanding and misusing the good things that God has given us. That's how Satan tempts us. He tempts us to take the good things that God has created, warp and distort them, misuse and abuse them, twist and pervert them until they become something that God never intended them to be, and to use them in ways that he never intended them to be used. Namely, Satan tempts us to take the things that God has given us and turn them into ultimate things that actually end up taking God's place in our lives and, make, and, and making us center ourselves around something other than him. C.S. Lewis makes precisely this point in his imaginative book about demons, The Screwtape Letters. The book's premise is that of an older, experienced demon named Screwtape, who is writing to another demon, actually his nephew, named Wormwood. Wormwood is a young, inexperienced tempter, and so Screwtape writes letters of advice to him to help him lead his patient, um, a young British man, closer to damnation. Anyway, at one point in the letter, Screwtape admits that for all their research to try and produce one, hell has never been able to develop what he calls an original pleasure. All they've ever been able to do, screw tape laments, is take the gifts of the enemy, the gifts of God, and get people to misuse them. And when you think about it, that's true, right? After all, who made the things that we use in our lives? God did, right? Even the things we misuse, even the things we associate with sin, even the things we stereotypically think of as bad or evil or dirty, they're actually all originally created by God. I mean, where else could they have come from, right? Uh, if God is the creator of everything, <clears throat> then everything in this world was originally created by, by him and originally made good. And so the question when it comes to our idols is not where do they come from. We know the answer to that question. Instead, the question is how do we use them? And that's where things can go off the rails. Again, nothing in this world is inherently bad. It can't be. If it was made by God, then it can't be irreducibly evil. Sex, drugs, alcohol, language, relationships, ambition, creativity, the raw materials of the earth, they all have their place. It's just that in our sinfulness, we end up caving into Satan's influence and using those gifts that God has given us. And they are gifts from him in ways that he didn't intend that ultimately end up harming ourselves and our relationship with him. And money is a great example of that. You see, despite its reputation, money isn't inherently bad either. Uh, Instead at a basic level, it's actually a a product of, of human social ingenuity and creativity. What I mean by that is that money, or at least currency, has been around a long time. The basic concept was born whenever it was that one caveman realized he could um, he could trade something that he didn't want for something that he did want from another caveman. You know, something like, "Hey Bob, I'll give you this mammoth meat if you give me that really nice looking club of yours." Right? That's my caveman impression. It would have been better in person, but you know, it's all I've got right now. But that's a good thing, right? That's a good creative development in human society. It's, it's helped us organize our communities, develop socially and economically. And when used justly and equitably, and that's an important caveat, right? It has to be used the right way. But when it's used the right way, money and currency can also make sure that people have what they need to flourish and thrive as human beings. In other words, money can be a good thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing, even a great thing. And we all know stories of how it can be used that way, right? Right? The problem is that we also all know stories about how it can be used the exact opposite way. And that's because just like with all the other things in this world, all the other gifts that God has given us, all the other blessings he's bestowed upon us and lavished us with in his creation, money can also be warped and distorted, misused and abused and twisted and perverted towards sinful and evil ends. And that's because money, just like anything else, can take the place of God and become an idol for us. And that was the rich young man's problem here. That was his sin. That was, to answer his question in verse 20, the thing he lacked and the thing that was keeping him from entering into the life that God wanted to give him. And if we're not careful, that's the sin that we can fall into when it comes to money too. Like we just said, money isn't, or sorry, money is an inherently good thing. But as as I hope we've seen this morning, that doesn't mean it can't become an idol for us as well. Like we said, idols are good things that become ultimate things. And the fact of the matter is that there are few things that can become as ultimate as quickly as money can for us. I'm just going to say that again. Money is a good thing, but the fact of the matter is that there are few things that can become as ultimate as quickly as money can. We didn't read this part right, but that's why Jesus goes on a little later in this passage to say it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because money is so easy to pursue. It's so easy to value. It's so easy to see as significant, worthwhile, and of utmost importance. When you don't have it, you want it. When you have a bit of it, you want more. And when you have a lot of it, you want to hang on to it. And it's not just money, right? I mean, the same thing is true of time, attention, praise, success. There are many things that are easy for us to center our lives around as human beings. But money is definitely one of them. And the thing is that when money becomes an idol like that, it's incredibly hard to be generous. After all, who wants to give away the thing that is ultimate to them? The thing that is most significant to them? The thing that is most valuable to them? To put it another way, who wants to be generous with the thing that has become their God? The rich young man in this passage didn't want to be generous with his money, with his God. In verse 21, Jesus tells him, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he is offering this young man the chance to turn away from his idolatry and sin, to free himself from his slavery to wealth, and to orient his life around the one he should be worshiping instead. And he can't do it. Matthew writes, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now I'll just say that Jesus' command uh, to the rich young man here, go sell your possessions and and give to the poor, isn't a command that he gives to everyone. I don't have time to get into all the hermeneutical and interpretive reasons for why I say that. This is a great example of why you should start coming back in a couple of weeks once we start Sunday nights. Um, I'll simply say that it's clear that Jesus doesn't command everyone who follows him to go sell all our possessions and give it all away. But what he does ask us to do, all of us, including this young man here, is give ourselves a good, honest self-assessment. Who or what... Is ultimate in our lives. In other words, what do we center our lives around? What can't we live without? Or to put it another, another way, what do we worship in place of God? When it's money, as it was for this rich young man, it will always be a, an obstacle to the kind of generosity that we are called to as Christians. And so that's the question for us this morning. What's our relationship to money? Is it simply one of the many good things that God has given us in our lives? Or has it become something more? Something ultimate? Something that's actually taken the place we're supposed to reserve for God alone? If so, I have good news for you. As Christians, we call that good news the gospel. You see, the same way that Jesus seeks to set this young man free from his sin, uh, set him free from his misplaced trust and his wealth, his idolatry to his money, in the same way Jesus seeks to set us free too. It might not be the same thing for us, right? We might not need freedom from money, riches, and wealth the way that this young man did. Some of us might. But for others of us, it's, it's something different. You know, something else has taken the place of God in our lives. Something else has become our idol. Something else has become ultimate for us. Whatever it is, Jesus wants to set us free. As one of the other gospel writers says, when Jesus looked at this young man, he loved him. He loves us too. And so he's not content to let us live our lives focused on things that don't in reality satisfy, things that don't lead to the kind of generous, abundant, flourishing life we're meant for, things that aren't God, and if we're honest with ourselves, can't truly compare to him. In essence, what Jesus does here is he says to us, just as he did to this rich young man, don't forget the most important thing. Don't forget God. Because the truth is, He's worth more than anything else you could possibly pursue. Including all the money in the world. Combined. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, you occupy the center of our lives. You're our Creator, You're our Redeemer. You're the one who sustains and provides for everything that we need. You sustain us each and every day of our lives, Lord. You've given us all these gifts. The fact is sometimes we twist and and distort and, and misuse them in ways we're not supposed to. But Lord, You have also given us the ultimate gift, Your Son, Jesus Christ, to restore us to right relationship with You and right relationship with everything and everyone else, too. Thank you for the gift of a Savior that you have given us. And it's in his name in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.